This is the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors, fund managers, analysts, and company CEOs to give you an edge when it comes to investing in the commodity space. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where our goal is to make you a better investor in the commodity space. My name is Jesse Day, and before we dive in, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investment advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the author of The Daily Dirt Nap, a market newsletter for investment professionals, along with several books, including his latest, No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. We're going to get his thoughts on if commodities have a place in his ideal portfolio. We're going to talk about gold, silver, uranium, and more. Jared Dillian, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. Before we dive into everything, we have to start by clearing the air because in the past, you actually coined a term that is widely used by the uranium <laughs> investment community on Twitter, and that is uranium assholes. I believe you made a tweet something to the extent of some uranium investors seem like assholes. Um, that caught on like wildfire. People still use it to this day, which I find very amusing. Um, so take us back to this tweet that started it all. And also you had some reservations about investing in uranium at that time. I'm wondering if you've changed your views at all. 2023, obviously a very good year. And uh, 2024 off to a good start for the sectors. We reach $100 on the spot price. A lot of the equities did do very well. Do you see any opportunity in uranium at present? Well, first of all, let's go back to the tweet. So um, this was a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, I actually, I think I owned CCJ at the time or I did previously, but I've, I've owned CCJ and I did fine on it. I did well. I don't own it currently. Um, and I'm looking at this and my feed is like filling up with all this uranium stuff. And there's like uranium meme accounts and uranium podcasters and uranium newsletters. And I'm like, the whole market cap of this space is like $4 billion. And there's so much attention paid to it. And I said, there's too many assholes in the trade. That's what I said. I didn't call them assholes, but I said, there's too many assholes in the trade. Assholes being like a term for too many speculators, basically, you know? Um, and that, that, like you said, like I coined the term and now they're the U-holes and uranium assholes and stuff like that. So, I mean, obviously since then uranium has done really well, but you know, I'm, my style of investing is that I invest based on sentiment. And what I noticed was that sentiment on uranium was getting really hot. And about the time that I made that comment, like uranium shit the bed and everybody had to wait a couple more years for the, the bull market to really start. You know, now, like, it, it, what's interesting is that even though the bull market has started and uranium is doing really well, sentiment is a lot cooler. Like, people are more measured. There, there's more risk management. Um, and I think, I think people really have the right attitude about it now. So, great. Well, um, are you still in CCJ right now? No, or no. you're not. Okay, no. interesting. So you're not currently invested in uranium or looking at the sector um, nope. to potentially invest. Okay, good to know. I want to shift over to the energy space, the oil and gas sector as well here. You mentioned in an interview a few months ago that you thought it was starting to become a bit of a crowded trade. We've seen WTI crude correct since then, as well as a lot of the equities. Um, we are seeing bearish headlines everywhere, You know, the Permian Basin producing more oil than expected. Um, however, on the other side of things, we have OPEC extending production cuts. 
the situation going on right now in the in the Middle East with the Suez Canal and um, one other canal as well. The name's escaping me. Where where shipping is becoming an issue, a lot of people are pointing to the fact that that could cause upwards pressure on the oil price. What are your thoughts at present on the energy market? Um, I don't really have any strong opinions at the moment. I mean, I was really bearish um, when it, it was last summer, the summer of 22, when oil prices got up to 120. Sentiment got really, really hot. Um, and I actually remember at the time um, – you know, I, I trade futures. I have a, I, I do it by voice. I have a futures broker. I don't do it online. And I called up my broker and I'm like, what do you, what are people talking about these days? And he said, all the calls I'm getting are people looking for ways to play oil going to 200. And I was like, oh boy, like that's, you know, that's the top. So, um, obviously, you know, WTI is in the low seventies. Um, I'm getting more constructive on it. It's, it's, uh, oil is having a tough time selling off below seventies. It seems to find some support here. Uh, I really like, you know, like I said earlier, like my style is, is sentiment trading and technicals. I don't really focus on the fundamentals. Um, but with the gun to my head, I would, I would rather be long than short here. So. You know, I think we, I think, I think we've worked off most of that bullish sentiment from 2022. You know, I think we, I think we worked it off. So, well, I, I want to get into your investment style and philosophy a little bit later, but first, I would now like to get your thoughts on gold. Obviously, making new nominal all-time highs last year before dropping dropping to just above two thousand, where it currently hovers. Um, many are pointing out that two thousand seems like the new support level for gold, and it's being set up for an epic bull market in, in the words of many gold bugs online. I'm wondering from your point of view, um, what your thoughts are on gold and how you expect it to perform in 2024 and beyond. Well, gold has spent, I don't know how many days above 2000 now, but the more time it spends above 2000, the better. Um, there is some resistance at 2070, which was the previous all time high. And there's also some resistance at 2135, which was that high we made on Sunday night um, w- during that Asian open when it ran stops and it traded up to like 2135. So uh, resistance at 2070, resistance at 2135. But like I said, the longer it spends abo- above 2000, the better. Um, and, you know, today with the PPI numbers, uh, gold is actually trading about 2060. So it looks pretty good. And how do you feel about silver here? A metal nowhere near its all time highs in a sector where sentiment is so low that whenever I bring it up, I get angry comments telling me how useless this metal is. Um, and any thoughts on, on the potential performance of silver? Well, the only thing about, I'll say about silver is that silver has a big fat right tail, of the distribution. Okay. Um, you know, the, the distribution has two tails, the left tail and the right tail, the right tail is the upside, you know, in the last 50 years in silver, you've had two parabolic moves, you know, one in the 1970s during the, the Hunt brothers situation and one in 2011. Um, I think it was 2000. Yeah, it was 2010, 2011, uh, went to $50 an ounce. Like it's good to own some silver because like silver has that fat right tail and it can go parabolic on you at any moment. So it's, it's a good asset to own from a portfolio perspective. Um, I would not put 150, 
20 or even 10% of my money in silver, it's a good thing to have like 2% of your money in, you know, just for that optionality. Um, but I don't, I don't really have any fundamental views on silver. I mean, it trades like ass and it's, it's annoying and, you know, it's, um, it's been super disappointing in the last few years for sure. So I, I will say, you know, you know, what's funny is, um, you know, I teach at the local university and, uh, I teach a personal finance class and there's actually a chapter on alternative investments. So I brought in a visual aid for one of my classes. I brought in a hundred ounce silver bar. Okay. Uh, one of the Johnson Matthew bars and, you know, I have like 10 of them at home. So I brought one in. And I was having the class pass it around and I'm kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, like this hunk of metal is only worth 2,800 bucks. Like that's pretty cheap. You know, just, just kind of, I'm holding it, I'm looking at it and I'm like, kind of seems like it should be worth more than that. If you think about the amount of effort it took to mine it out of the ground and refine it and turn it into a bar and ship it to me, like, it just seems like it should be worth more than 2,800 bucks, you know? Do you look at physical gold and silver as money? Do you, do you look at it as a way of storing wealth outside the financial system? Absolutely. The, uh, oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I want to get your current view of U- the U.S. Treasury market because this is something else um, I heard you talking about, I believe, in an interview uh, a while back. It might have been a few months ago, if, if memory serves me correctly. You mentioned you were very bullish on, I believe it was two-year U.S. Treasuries. I'm wondering oh, yeah. where you... Yeah, I'm wondering where you stand on that and the opportunity you currently see in the treasury market. So um, if, you, if you rewind about three months ago, everybody was bearish on bonds. Yields were above 5%. Um, and you had people saying that, you know, we weren't going to have a recession. We weren't going to have a soft landing. We were going to have no landing. Yields would go to 6 7 8%. It was going to be Armageddon in the bond market. It's totally the wrong call. Like, it t- turned out to be super wrong. Um at the time, I was of the opinion that the Fed would cut rates for one of two reasons. Number one, maybe we would have a recession. Or number two, you know, with yields above 5%, like with Fed funds at 55 we essentially had 3.5% real positive real interest rates, which is very restrictive monetary policy. With Fed funds at three and a half, at five and a half, and um, core PCE at 2%, you have positive real interest rates of 3.5%. So I was thinking maybe the Fed would cut just to get go from this restrictive monetary policy to something more neutral. And that's what happened. You had the speech from Christopher Waller, and they, you know, they, they priced in three, three rate cuts into the dot plot, and that's where we are today. So today we got PPI. And uh, the bond market's ripping. Um, twos are at four fifteen. Like it's worked out. So I had a pretty big position in two-year notes. Uh, I reduced some of it. I got rid of about thirty percent of it going into this week's numbers. Uh, but I still have a pretty large position. So. And any thoughts on the longer term, longer duration treasuries, the TLT? Uh, I think that you know, ultimately where I think the yield curve will go is we'll have twos at two and a half and tens at three and a half. I think it's going to be tough for the long end to rally much past three and a half percent. 
Good to know. I would also like to get your take on the broad market here as well. The S&P and the NASDAQ seem to keep quietly grinding higher, but people continue to pound the table that they're massively overvalued and they're about to collapse. Um, do you see a correction coming and, and a, perhaps a dramatic correction coming for the broad market? Or do you think we could continue to see new highs being breached? I mean, I've thought we would have a, cor a correction for about two weeks now. I have a small short position in the S&P. Um, it's, um, I don't know, it's been, you know, I, 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 my definition of diversification is you need some losing positions to go along with your winning positions. So, so, <laughs> so I needed to add a losing position in stocks to diversify out my winners. Um, but no, I, it's, from the from a technical standpoint, from a sentiment standpoint, I think we should have about a six to eight percent correction. Uh, it's just not happening. So I don't know what to say. Well, let's beat a dead horse here and also talk about global recession, U.S. recession. Are we on the precipice of one? This is another point where every day someone posts data points and economic indicators that show it's impossible. We can't have a recession. Um it's dangerous to say this time is different, obviously, but Howard Marks has pointed out around 20% of the time, this time actually can be different. So what, what are your thoughts on the, the recession question? Um, well, a recession usually happens when people least expect it. You know what I mean? Like that's, um, it, it's, it, you know, with all the economists in the world, all the PhD economists in the Fed and stuff like that, like you, nobody has the ability to predict a recession or when it's going to happen. Uh, sometimes it's an exogenous event. Sometimes it's a confluence of things. Sometimes it's both. Um, so, you know, I was, as of about three months ago, I was thinking to myself, you know, I think the labor market's going to get weaker. I think we're going to start printing 300,000 on claims. I think we'll get 5% unemployment. The labor market has been bulletproof. Um, you know, the interesting thing is, is that the economic data is pretty much in the same place as it was three months ago, but yields are a hundred basis points lower or more, you know? So it's not, so either the market is, is pricing in some kind of horrific recession or I don't know what's going on. Could you maybe talk about the impact that central bank policy and the decisions made by the Fed and the ECB organizations like that actually impact the market? Because I think for a lot of people, it's really tough to, to wrap their heads around that. Um, and do you think we actually have a free market at all now? Or is it more of a kind of centrally controlled market with free market characteristics? Uh, I think it's a combination of the two. Um, the, the Fed, the central banks definitely have the ability to move the market a lot. Um, you know, in fact, this rally in stocks started at 4150 in the S&P a couple months ago and it was based on the idea of the Fed easing monetary policy. Like it was all liquidity driven, you know. So stocks went from 4150 to 4800 based on the idea that the Fed would cut three times in 2024. So the Fed has a huge impact on the market and you know, I actually, I spend quite a bit of time trying to not really predict what the market's going to do, but trying to predict what the Fed's going to do. It's very hard to predict what the market's going to do, but it's very easy to predict what the Fed is going to do. The Fed is made up of 19 people who care about covering their ass. Okay. They are, they're very easy to predict. 
Um, I have always said that the Fed follows the path of least embarrassment. They will always do the least embarrassing thing. It's a face-saving institution. Very easy to predict. So if you can predict the behavior of 19 people, you don't really have to predict the behavior of a billion people, you know, which is harder. And uh, could you maybe shed some light into your own investment strategy at present? Because we've discussed commodities. We've discussed that you're, you're bullish on treasuries at the moment. Where else are you current, currently seeing value? Um, and maybe give us some, some reasoning behind your current capital allocation and things that you're watching. Well, uh, I don't, I, you look at stocks and U.S. stocks are overpriced and everything else is underpriced. You know, it's not that I'm a strict value investor, but when I look at, you know, the S&P trading at 25 times and Europe trading at 10 times and emerging markets trading in single digits, like, uh, like all of my equity investments are overseas, like Europe, emerging markets, stuff like that. Um, so. Um, you know, EM in particular has underperformed for a long time. Um, I don't, I don't really see a catalyst for outperformance, but I would rather own cheap stocks than expensive stocks. So, and when it comes to emerging markets, are there any markets in particular that you're more bullish on? Um, and also I wanted to ask about China because one thing I've been noticing with a lot of emerging markets ETFs is they have a very large allocation to China. Um, I personally have concerns that they could be the next country to be sanctioned in a similar way that Russia was. Do you have any thoughts there? Do, do you think the Chinese equity market could be a little bit dangerous because of that? And uh, wh which emerging markets in particular do you think currently provide the most value? I think it's possible China doesn't even have a stock market in five years. You know, I don't understand people's obsession with China and their desire to pick the bottom in China. It is a communist country. It is run by Xi. It is top down. Executives are disappearing. There is no such thing as private property. Why would you want to own stocks in this environment? Like, and it, I, it, like, I get, I get pushback on this all the time. Like, people are like, well, you know, K Web looks cheap. I'm like, you're an idiot. Like, it's the, you're missing the bigger picture. Like, this is a communist country. Like, you do not want to own stocks here. And it, I, even I got today, I got an email from one of my subscribers. He's like, I'm going to pick a bottom on Chinese stocks. I'm like, please stop, like, stop doing this. Like, they're not like it is. It is very pot. Russia doesn't have a stock market anymore. Like China will not have a stock market. Like this is all bad. And then any any emerging markets uh, in particular that you're currently seeing value in? India is amazing. India is the place to be, right? So if you look at it from a demographics perspective, uh, China's demographics are collapsing. India's demographics are growing. Modi has done a terrific job in India, modernizing infrastructure and in, in getting rid of bureaucracy. Like it's, it's really like the number one story in emerging markets and people are starting to figure that out. Uh, if you look at a chart, it's going from the lower left to the upper right. Like that's India is really pl the place to be over the next five to 10 years. And uh, just continuing on the emerging markets theme, because this is actually an area of the market I'm interested in. How do you play it? Do you use ETFs? Do you do the research and invest in individual securities within those markets? Um, no, I don't trade individual stocks. I just use ETFs. Yeah. Okay, great. And um, I was wondering, you know, I don't know how 
Obviously, this show is commodity culture, so we discuss commodities specifically for the most part. I'm wondering if you see any room for commodities in the average investor's portfolio. Do you view the spec the sector as more of a speculative bet, or do you think there's actually you know enough? Obviously, you look at the technicals. You were saying you were saying. Um, do you think there's enough there for for it to be part of a, a stable portfolio? You know, I'm sure you've seen like the periodic table of returns and asset classes over the last 10, 15, 20 years, stuff like that. And commodities is always at the bottom. And, you know, actually, I saw a tweet on this just the other day, like, why the hell would you invest in commodities? Like it, it loses money every year. Um, it's there's there's you should have an allocation to commodities. Um, we're going to talk about the book pretty soon. Um you know, I've I've done a lot of back testing on strategies with commodities. The problem the problem with holding a commodity index in your portfolio, like DJP or GSG or something like that, is that uh, the roll costs are very high. There's a lot of negative carry. You're fighting against this carry. It's very hard. Um, I prefer just to use gold as a proxy for all commodities. And I think you should have a portfolio. I think you should have 20% gold in your portfolio and just use that as a proxy for commodities. So very interesting, a 20% allocation to gold. Could you maybe expand on, on the reasoning behind that for us? Yeah. So gold is Dennis Rodman, right? Gold is the Dennis Rodman of asset classes. So Dennis Rodman was one of the greatest basketball players of all time, but they almost didn't put him in the Hall of Fame because he only scores like six points a game, right? And they're like, why are we putting this guy in the Hall of Fame that doesn't score? And if you had a team of five Dennis Rodmans, it would be a terrible team. Like it would just never go score and it would get like steamrolled all the time. But if you take Dennis Rodman, a guy who can rebound and pass, and you add him to a team of four other people that can shoot, the team gets a lot better. And gold is Dennis Rodman. It's not so much that the returns of gold are exceptional. The returns have been pretty good, but it's not so much that the returns of gold are exceptional. It's that gold makes any portfolio better because it is not correlated to other asset classes. It's not correlated to other asset classes. So if you add gold to a portfolio of stocks and bonds and real estate and other stuff, like it suddenly gets a lot better because the portfolio risk comes down. So let's talk about your latest book, No Worries on How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. Talk to us about the book. And, and also, that's a very interesting concept because when, when in, in the community that I live in, it's an echo chamber of you know commodities investors and people talking about individual securities. And most of these people on Twitter are just speculating on, on penny stocks, really, at the end of the day. Um, and so live a very high high stress financial life actually so i'm wondering how how does your average person get a stress free financial life what is the way to get there talk to us about the book and and all those details first of all like there is a place for degenerate speculation like there's a place for that uh but it's not with all of your money it's with like 10% of your money okay uh, the, the other 90% of your money should be invested in stocks and bonds and real estate and cash and stuff like that. So, um, no, the book is about financial stress. Okay. Like all other personal finance books are about how to make the most money. This book is about financial stress. How do you live a stress-free financial life? And the two chief activators of financial stress are debt and risk. 
So if you have a lot of debt, you're going to experience stress. If you have a lot of risk, you're going to experience stress. The other thing the book talks about is it's not a million small decisions that determine whether you have money. You hear this stuff from Susie Orman where she says that if you don't buy coffee in the morning, then you can save $3.70. And if you add that up over the course of the year, it's 900 bucks. And over 40 years, you have 36,000 bucks. And if you invest that in the S&P 500, it's 150,000 bucks. Like people say that kind of stuff. The reality is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So that's a million small decisions. One big decision is, okay, I can get a house that's 3,000 square feet or 2,500 square feet. If I get a house that's 2,500 square feet, it's going to cost $200,000 less. And I'm going to spend, I'm going to, I'm going to spend 250,000 less in interest over the life of the loan. So by making one big decision, it makes up for all the million small decisions. So it's not a million small decisions that determine if you're rich. It's a couple of big decisions. It's the house, the car and the student loans. And when it comes to investing in the stock market, how do you think stress can be reduced there? You mentioned understanding risk. Do you think it's mostly a poor idea for your average person to be looking at individual equities? Is there a more stress-free way of approaching financial markets from an investment standpoint? Well, the prevailing wisdom in um in the in the in the markets is that you should invest in an index fund, the S&P 500 index fund, and you should dollar cost average it and hold it over your entire life, right? Well, if you hold an index fund over 40 years, you're going to experience about 15 corrections, about seven or eight bear markets, and you're going to have one or two great bear markets where you're going to have 50% drawdowns. So you're going to have a bunch of 10% drawdowns, a bunch of 20% drawdowns. You're going to have like one 50% drawdown. And Vanguard, you know, their, all their marketing says, just hold, just hold throughout all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. Like, even if I had the ability to do that, do I want to experience 20, 30, 50% drawdowns over the course of my investing life? I will be freaking out. I will be shitting my pants. You know, that's going to increase my stress. So my solution to this is something called the awesome portfolio, which is 20% stocks, 20% bonds, 20% cash, 20% gold, and 20% real estate. This portfolio returns 8.1% a year with half the risk of an 80-20 portfolio and a max drawdown of 12% in a year, a max drawdown of 12%. So you return 1% less than the stock market with half the risk and a drawdown of 12%. That's a solution. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jared. Could you tell us where people can find the book? And if there's anywhere else you'd like to direct people online, feel free. So here's a book. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon or you can go to buynoworries.com. We set up a website for that. You can go to buynoworries.com. And what was the other question? <laughs> and anywhere else you want to direct people, social media or anywhere else. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at, at DailyDirtNap. Great. I'll put links to both the book and your Twitter in the description below. Thanks once again, Jared, for coming on and sharing your knowledge with the audience. Thanks. It was great. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.